Hi everybody, this is a podcast where real doctors discuss fake medical emergency. That means that unless you got food poisoning when Donna brought you the finest muffins and bagels in all the land, this podcast is not medical advice. If you need medical advice or medical care, please contact your doctor. Hi, everybody. I'm Jackson Bain. I'm Johnny Kolosinski. You remember me from such podcasts as the West Wing Weekly Weekly, which is an actual fake podcast I did one day on April Fool's Day. Uh, <laughs> this is Hi, Everybody, a Bad Medicine podcast. Every week we talk about what medicine... No, we don't. We talk about what Hollywood gets right and wrong about medicine. Why, why, why must you do this every other week? I know. <laughs> it's, it's become a routine. Um, you can find this podcast, which talks about Hollywood and medicine, at Hi, Everybody, MD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or at www.hieverybodymd.com. You can also call us at 530-DOCTORB. That is 530-D-O-C-T-O-R-B. The B stands for Bradley Whitford, I guess. Okay. Because we're talking about the West Wing, since that was what you set us up with. Uh, We are talking about the West Wing season two premiere and second episode, In the Shadow of Two Gunmen, part one and two. This is, to me, so I I flat out love The West Wing. That that and Star Trek are my two favorite television program, hands down. First episode of West Wing I think I've watched, and I still couldn't get all the way through. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my favorite type of show. Mm -hmm. Um, Still watched it. Um, Very, very tension. Much tension. So much tension. And then this one is obviously a highly dramatic one because it's dealing with the president just got shot. Yes, it was highly trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a lot of trauma, but you want to set it up since you are the one who knows more about the West Wing than I do. Yeah, so the the plot of the episode is essentially that in the uh, season finale of the first season, the president gets shot uh, and thrown into a car. We find out uh, that he's injured a little bit into the episode. He goes into, uh, he, he goes under surgery. He's fine. Uh, but they reveal that only 15 people in the world know this, but the president has multiple, multiple sclerosis. And they kind of glossed over it during this episode a little yeah. bit. Like they didn't really talk that much about it, which to be fair, the MS isn't going to get him. It's the gunshot that would but like let's just start from the beginning where um i guess they were first in the car Mm -hmm. right with the secret service and he's like all perseverating on was it who was throwing up a lot Uh, his daughter like oh his daughter was throwing up a bunch and the secret service agent accounted to stress and shock which fair that does happen but then like he pats him on the back of the head or something and notices blood Mm -hmm. i i mean i don't know how the blood got up there to be honest, unless it was like capillary action from the shirt traveling, you know, having the blood travel up his back mm-hmm. and eventually feeling it there. But then he started acting like he was in shock. And, and they also starts... did did your favorite thing of he was bleeding from the mouth. Yeah, why? Like you need to bleed so, you need to get shot in the stomach or esophagus or something like that for blood to finally get to your mouth or you've been bleeding for a really, really long time. But if that's the case, he should look like crap, like big time. Like he should yeah. look like he's dying. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess we'll focus on the doctor, him for a second, but like he, they go, oh, the bullet went all the way through. You got lucky. Which, yes and no. Sometimes a through and through is nice because at least you know you don't have a retained foreign body. But 
it might be bad because some the exit wound is much more dangerous than the entrance wound. Because mm. if you think of it like a cone, the cone of entry isn't that the when you enter the tip of the cone isn't that bad, but it explodes out and it can destroy everything that it goes through. Just like um, when you see when you see a balloon get shot in slow motion on Mythbusters or whatever. Yeah. You see a, a big violent water bursting out following the bullet. Exactly. So it's much more dangerous sometimes. But I do like how the nurses are being all catty in their ER, mm -hmm. going, oh, no, it's this pregnant lady who's worried that her baby isn't moving. It's just the beginning of the pregnancy. She'll be back, blah, blah, blah. And they kind of are really sassy about these return visitors, which, to be fair, I am, too, very sassy about our return visitors all the time. Like, like what is it today? Oh, your tummy still hurts, blah, blah, blah. And it gets, it gets annoying, but then they, like, call it trauma, trauma mm -hmm. one and then they start shifting patients out of the ed which is actually part kind of similar to what we would do in an er if um what we call an mci a mass casualty incident happens for those multiple injured victims we would actually move all the patients that aren't that sick out of the er to make room for the sickest people uh -huh. now if it was like a president situation i understand why they start kicking people out but you can't just kick everybody out mm -hmm. You know, you're, you kind of try to divert them to the nearest hospital if you can, <clears throat> which sometimes the, the hospital will do is we'll go on something called diversion where we tell them, look, our hospital can't accept any new patients. You need to send them to a, a, another local. Facility. Yeah, you've talked about that that happening. I won't go into specifics, but you've talked about yeah. that happening at, at, at your hospital. Yeah, and, and it's a scary situation where that happens. Um, but then, so they bring him in. Um, the doctor immediately goes, give me an ultrasound and a crash cart, which... I mean, I guess when this show came out, ultrasound wasn't as commonplace usage or mm -hmm. use, commonly used as it is now. So most of the time we'll have one sitting in our trauma bay ready to go. Um, but in this case, you know, you know he got shot in the stomach. Really the, the best part of the ultrasound is to make sure there's no other free fluid in mm -hmm. his abdomen. You know he's gonna go through a scanner. You know he's gonna go to the operating room already. Why are we fussing around with this part, you know? Right. And then, um, the other weird thing is, and this is going to sound weird, is if you get shot, you get stripped naked immediately. Because they want to look for secondary injuries? Exactly. You want to look for, because if there's one bullet hole, there's always a chance there's another bullet hole. Okay. So usually you don't give them the, the, sec, the, the chance to sit there and demand to talk to their family or whatever like that and lie in bed. You, you pretty much gurney to bed, scissors come out right away and you're you're naked and about. And you do have, the, like, for those who, who, I think we've covered it before, but for those who don't know, you have some pretty extensive experience in gunshot wounds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I used to deal with that a lot in, like, my training. So this is one of the situations. If I saw a patient like this got shot, I don't care if you're the president or not. I don't care if you want to talk to your parent or your family or whatever. You have to get examined and whatnot before that happens. Like he might be, he might be able to talk to his chief of staff, but he'd be talking to his chief of staff uh, in the buff. Correct. Um, but even then, we'll be like everyone out. Like if there's too many people talking, excuse me. If there's too many people talking, um, and I can't fully do an assessment and call out what I find on exams and whatnot, I start kicking people out. And if people are adding extra pressure, like people are like parents. I've had parents jump on the child, going, "Don't touch my baby." He's blah blah blah. I tell security to come and pull him out so I can do my job because. Mm -hmm. The chief of staff is not my patient. The right. daughter's, the president's daughter is not my patient. The president, in this case, would be my daughter, my patient, all right? 
So yeah. get out. Um, a question about like just the trauma situation in general. Uh-huh. Uh, the <clears throat> only code word that they had for mm-hmm. we're sending the president to you right now is the uh-huh. word blue. Yeah, that's that has to have been established ahead of time. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I think it would have been something more, a little less commonplace, though. Yeah. I mean, I understand why they might not want to say we're bringing the president. Right to your hospital because there's police scanners and people listen to the radios and whatnot and they try to deduce where mm-hmm. like especially reporters and whatnot try to deduce where the the important person is where going. the vip is yeah and that happens a lot like when we had our like when i was in a lockdown situation um the news reporters knew what was going on sometimes before we did mm-hmm. which was nuts because we weren't listening to on the episode uh, with yeah. the news reporters knowing what's going on before the, they listen, the White House staff did. Yeah, because they listen to the police scanners and they can mm-hmm. hear every all the chatter and whatnot. So um, when I was in a lockdown situation, I didn't know anything that was going on until the police told me. But then at times the news and Twitter had more information than what we had inside. Mm-hmm. So it was nuts. Um, so them making that call like that and kind of trying to divert them to another phone line, because that could have been a base station. And what a base station is, is they get the call and divert people to which hospital they should go to or what services they can provide and whatnot. And I think that's what happened in that situation. Okay. Um, so in, in the scene where Zoe, so his daughter and the chief of staff, Leo, <clears throat> came in and talked to him and his wife, Stockard Channing, came and talked to him, mm-hmm. um, the was that would that have been the or like or prep room or just a trauma bay that would just be the trauma bay okay because a lot of times you're not going from er to pre-op to op you don't have time for that like you have someone Mm -hmm. who's shot and you need to take them straight to the or so that they can do a laparotomy and that's what the surgery that he needed was was uh, called an exploratory laparotomy they kind of effed up a little bit because the surgeon goes, oh, there was no damage to him after the surgery. He goes, we did a laparoscopy or laparoscopy instead of Which would mean just be something investigative, right? So a laparoscopy means you used a scope. Mm-hmm. So you don't really open them up fully. Okay. That's the difference. Um, so usually with a lapar- lapar- laparotomy, you're opening up the abdomen like all the way through and then you're running the bowel which means you're actually holding each part of the intestines running through making sure you're not missing any holes um or bleeding or anything like that and then you're done a laparoscopy means you make a small incision you use like a fiber optic camera and you just look around and see if there's anything going on so that's very cursory Mm -hmm. and i would assume that if it's like the president of the united states you don't want to be cursory right especially if he's been shot um through the intestines and, you know, usually with hollow organ injuries, it's a little tougher because if you think about like spaghetti, if you try to poke through it, it's really hard to poke through a piece of spaghetti, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or penne, if you want to think with tubes and whatnot. Whereas if it's something more solid, like the meatball inside of the pasta, that's a lot easier <laughs> to poke through. That's a solid organ, right? So, so, so your liver's a meatball and your intestines are penne. Yeah. So if you want to think of it that way, because soft things move out of the way with any kind mm-hmm. of pressure and bullets kind of do the same thing you're more likely to have like a intestinal bruise maybe a small laceration that doesn't go all the way through um 
Whereas if you got shot a little higher up and it punctured his spleen, because he got shot on the left side, that would shatter, rupture, and he'd be bleeding a lot more. Okay. So usually though, um, it's kind of, at least where I trained, it was common practice to do an exploratory laparotomy to run mm-hmm. the bowel and make sure you're not missing anything. Because you don't want someone to eat and then all of a sudden they're leaking poop into their intestines. Frowned uh, upon. Um, oh, can I bring up one other thing? Why yeah, not? So like Bartlett, I guess the first lady, yeah. just like mm-hmm. starts quizzing the trauma surgeon. Like, oh. She's a doctor. What's, yeah, I know. But okay. still. Um, asking what his oxygen saturation is. Who cares? <laughs> his, okay. His, his, he's not breathing out of his intestines. His oxygen saturation is not the important thing. The most important thing here would be his blood pressure and his heart rate. Okay. Uh, right? Because if your blood pressure is tanking or your heart rate is starting to pick up, that means you're losing blood somewhere or you're actually having some kind of infection that's going on huh. too with the heart rate going up. So who cares what his oxygen saturation is? You don't breathe out of your, t- your tummy. So huh. not necessary. That, that's, that's one that I, that totally went right past me. Yeah. yeah. Like and this, then the, despite yeah. my, you know, almost one year of training on this podcast. Of training on this stuff. And the other thing that um, I want to touch note on is when they do um, trauma, there's a very strict algorithm you do. So it's like, it's called a primary and secondary survey. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do this before you cut off all their clothes, you check their airway, breathing, circulation, your ABCs. That's your first primary survey, right? Then you go from head to toe and look for all other injuries and whatnot. So where did that blood from the back of his head come from? Um, is his belly rigid? Does he have any signs of injury or anything like that? That's Why is his mouth stuff. bleeding? Correct. Like you would look inside their mouth, look, check their teeth, make sure there's no blood or anything else going on, check his ears. It's very like algorithmic going mm-hmm. step by step. And you got to roll the patient, you got to check his butt, you got to put a finger in the bum. Not my favorite part. Um, not not my patient's favorite parts either, but they definitely like cussing me out whenever I have to do that part of the exam, especially grown men. Um, but that's part of the training, part of the survey to make sure you're not missing anything. I, I just had a thought. Mm-hmm. In the past 40 years, uh-huh. there, someone has stuck their, their finger up the president's butt at least once a year since oh, like yeah. the 60s. I feel like that didn't happen for the last three years for some reason. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, it's the healthiest president we've ever had, so. It's a cavernous butthole. (laughs) There's probably a lot of tissue to go through just to reach the the entrance and don't want to do it. Like that was a, that was a, one of the most awkward days of medical school was um, practicing how to do that exam on live patients. Mm. When I was, people, people sign up to do that. When I was working in theater, I occasionally oh. did the pretending to be a patient thing, but I did not do it. I, I, I did not go full contact with it. Yeah, that, that day was male and female, um, how do I say it? Sensitive exam day. <laughs> and I remember one of my classmates was like a little too warm doing one of the exams and passed out face first. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> that is that not, is not. It's like, is it hot in this room? Oh god. <laughs> it's a hard. It's a hard day. Um. Oh, speaking of scalp blacks, because I'm gonna go back. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Alice and Jamie's character, CJ, mm -hmm. I think that's her name. Yeah. Um, they're like, the paramedic just examines her head and goes, oh, you have a scalp laceration. You don't need stitches. And just sends her on the way. But she had enough blood and she acted kind of concussed a yeah. little bit. Bleeding from the scalp is actually one of the biggest sources of blood loss. Right. Yeah. I've covered that before. Yeah. So, like, those people can go into hemorrhagic shock pretty quickly. So, you know, unless it's, like, a tiny little scratch or whatnot, usually they need staples. Yeah, and, and she's actively, I mean, in the next episode, she talks about how she literally doesn't remember the situation. So she's, she's concussed. Yeah. And that's someone that I'd probably send to the hospital just for like observation or at least stitches or, or more likely staples mm -hmm. than anything. Um, I've had patients that have lost so much blood that from falling or I don't know if that's how she got injured or not. She fell. Mm -hmm. I don't, do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. She, she was, she was pushed down out of the way of the bullet. Or yeah, those the bullets were flying. Yeah, so that's someone that would almost get a trauma activation, and then I would be looking for the source of bleed. And I remember some person I had lost so much blood, blood pressure was tanking, giving a lot of blood. I took out a stapler and was just jamming staples into their scalp until all the blood stopped from their scalp for a momentary, um, for just a moment, so that we can take them to the OR because he was so unstable, he couldn't even make it to the OR because we thought he was going to code just during the transport up to the operating room. Now, anatomy question. Is yeah. the reason that we have so much blood in our scalp because uh. there's so much blood that needs to go to the brain? Or is it because we have uh, a, yep. is it like cooling? That's a good question that I don't fully know the answer to. Um, your brain vessels are not related to your scalp vessels, okay. if I remember correctly. Um, because your brain vessels are kind of just your cerebral arteries. So you have your mm -hmm. middle cerebral artery, your lower or posterior cerebral artery, and I think frontal. Don't quote me on this. But then you have your scalp arteries. Bad arteries. news. You're getting quoted because this is a thing that we record and other people listen yeah, to. Yeah, fair. I don't remember all my anatomy. That was like God, 10 years ago. Um, but you do have a lot of... Um, musculature in your face that needs a lot of perfusion too so that could be also another source of why the other thing too is the scalp is relatively thin compared to like other parts of your body that compared to how it's, close it is it, to your it's, bone it's it's thin and it's taut it's thin it's taut and it's also right underneath sharp things mm -hmm. you know like your bone's pretty sharp your frontal bone and your eye sockets are very sharp so that's why the eyebrow lacerations happen a lot your chin's actually relatively sharp so if you fell you can actually cut that pretty bad your nose actually has a part on there that's kind of sharp you can cut there too so there's actually parts where you can pinch really well and cause a lot of bleeding hmm. but yeah but um i if i was that paramedic i wouldn't be so cavalier i'd be like do you need to go to the er at least to get checked out to make sure you're okay because you are in a, you're involved in the mass casualty incident you need to get mm -hmm. evaluated this is one where a lot of people died where we would do the the tagging of people mm -hmm. on scene and if you got the black tag you're pretty much dead like it's not that kind of thing yeah but it's enough that i would probably send them to the er mm -hmm. yep uh, um and I, uh, okay, one more question about Bartlett before we move on. And I know that you uh, didn't really have a chance to research this. The MS uh, obviously becomes a ongoing. At the end of season two, yes. So all, all through season two and season three. Okay. Um, that, that's, that's where we meet Oliver Babish. 
Uh, yeah. Um, be- because uh, because he's because their president is being censured for lying about MS. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Dr. Bartlett, the first lady, says to the anesthesiologist, "The president has relapsing, relating, uh, relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. Uh-huh. Uh, you need to know this for for the for put before you put him under." Sure. Um, and then she says, "Tell the press. Don't don't tell the press. Do what you want." Isn't yeah. he pretty much under a obligation not to tell the press? Unless the press asked, to, well, it's what the it's up to the patient. Mm-hmm. If the patient does not want this disclosed, it's up to the patient. Right. So he can't say that. Right. It doesn't affect. It does affect his job sedating someone or putting someone Mm -hmm. under anesthesia because that's actually one of the questions is do you have a chronic medical condition Mm -hmm. because that can affect your recovery it can affect your metabolism of the drugs Um, it can affect how the drugs affect your body it could mean that he's on another medication correct so all these yeah and odds are he's probably on some steroids if he has ms um so that can affect a lot of things but the press can't ask something like that yeah or the press can ask like Brett, they like can that. ask whatever they want but he the doctor be... cannot disclose it unless yeah. there's direct consent from the patient to reveal it and a direct consent from the patient isn't his wife saying do what you want yeah though and the wife is not the wife might have power of attorney right now mm-hmm. but does not have power over HIPAA. Right. Yeah. She is not the end all be all on this one. Was HIPAA around, like, is, is it that old of a thing where it was around uh, in 2000? I want to say this episode was 2000. It might have been 2000. No, it wasn't uh, 2000. I'm not sure. Let me check the Google machine. 1996. So, yes. Okay. It was the health insurance portability and accountability act okay i thought it was i thought it was newer than that for some reason 96 um and it was it was 2000 um yeah this was before 9-11 because yep. they made a comment about bin laden they name dropped bin laden yes before 9-11 yep yep um i'm just gonna have a total tangent so okay. Anna Beer smith is uh the woman who plays uh the um Secretary, uh, uh, National Security Advisor, and she's also mm. a, a playwright that did um, a lot of, uh, basically, she's a playwright and performer that did a lot of interviews and then performing those interviews, uh, including a piece called Fires in the Mirror, which is about the LA riots in 96, I no. believe. No, um, LA uh, riots were not 96. 92. 92? 92. Yeah. You, you were there. I was not. Yeah. Um, um, I worked in uh, uh, for one of the arts programs at Stanford for a while, and she teaches there. She got on an elevator with me, and that was the only time I can think of that I've ever been, like, completely starstruck, flabbergasted, and couldn't say it, and, and like, That's like me. Gush. That was like me with the cast of The Good Place. Yeah. <laughs> Where I almost pooped myself. Right. Where it's, was... oh, you're a playwright with a recurring role on The West Wing, and I'm 
freaking out like you're Patrick Stewart in my head. Yeah, fair, fair. Um, total tangent. Um, a little bit. Yeah, but that's fair. I so um, the MS storyline is is an ongoing thing over the next two seasons, specifically when he's censured and then during the reelection. Um, okay, and so. I know it. This isn't your jam, but it's one that that I would love to come back to at times. If um, only I knew more people who knew more about MS. Yeah. Well, we'll find them. Um. I the other big big thing that happens in this episode, mm-hmm. is Josh Lyman, who his, is uh, on his communication staff, um, mm-hmm. he's basically Rahm Emanuel in the nineties. Is he shot severely? Uh, yeah, so he got shot in the left abdomen. And yeah, he was found on the steps, and then he passes out very dramatically. Mm-hmm. And if I remembered what the EMT's report was, and I wrote it down, G- gunshot wound victim, no exit wound seen on 15 liters at 92%, with decreased lung sounds on the left side, shot through the fifth intercostal space. Fifth intercostal space is that between the fifth and sixth fourth. ribs, or yes, okay, I believe so. Wait, hold on. Yes, because you can't really be shot in the first intercostal space if it's between the zero and the first rib. Okay, so you have <laughs> but, a zeroth rib. Yes, but think about where he got shot. He, he was holding pretty low down in his abdomen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the fifth intercostal space is pretty is much right below your nipple. Oh, just below your nipple. Okay, T fours or T four. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so about slightly below the nipple. Uh, that is not where he got shot at all. So noticing that that was a little interesting. Um, not only was he holding there, but that's also where it was bleeding. Yes. It's not like oh, that's where the bullet ended up, and so that's where I'm feeling the most owie. Yeah. Though you can have pneumonias and thoracic injuries and have abdominal pain as your mm-hmm. um, presentation. So we'll have people with pneumonia with severe abdominal pain. And that's because the phrenic nerve is irritated and that causes pain in your abdomen. Okay. So that's that thing. The other weird thing that they asked for was his oxygen saturation, mm-hmm. um, which initially was 92% in the 198. The big concern for me is if I saw someone shot in the chest, yes, oxygen saturation is important. The blood pressure is just as important. Right. And that's not something that they called out for anybody. No. And the reason why is you can have something called tension pneumothorax. So they were telling him he had a collapsed lung because the bullet went through his chest and his lung went down. Right. Mm -hmm. Tension pneumothorax means you're having so much air entering your, your chest cavity on that half that it's pushing everything over to the other side. Okay. And when it does that, you, you have difficulty returning blood back to the heart, and you can actually go into cardiac arrest. Okay. So that's the scary part about his injury. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the first thing you would do is, and this is the reason why you want to know what their blood pressure is and how they're looking, is because if he did have a tension pneumothorax, we'd do something called a needle, needle uh, thoracotomy. Okay. So we put a needle between the first and second, in the second intercostal space, mid-clavicular line. You take like the biggest needle you can find and you just pop it in there. And if you did it right, you hear this whoosh of air. And that's pretty fun. 
only done it once. I think, did we talk about that on the uh, shooter episode? Probably, yeah. But that that's really fun because you put it in and just go, and you're like, I did it. I fixed it. Like them. a balloon and then up. something bad happens. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I saved this life. But they were calling for a chest tube and they actually brought out all this stuff. So they brought mm-hmm. out like the suction canister, which is that little rectangular thing. And then they wanted to insert a chest tube into him. And that's a really bloody scene. And that hurts like hell. Okay. So I'm surprised they didn't like have an IV and, or at least mention like, give him some medicine before we put this tube in. Cause it's gonna, it's gonna suck. Cause what you do is you make a cut on the side of your chest or you insert lidocaine, you cut the side of the chest and then you're jamming your finger with the tube and a metal thing through there and then inserting the tube in. For some reason, I didn't think about the fact that you would obviously be wearing gloves in that yeah. situation. Well, and so I was yeah. like, wow, that sounds like really risky for infection because you're just sticking your bare finger in there. No, doctors wear gloves and I'm an idiot. Double gloves, double gloves for this one. Um, all the way through, just in case if his ribs were shattered, you don't want to cut yourself and then get whatever they're getting. And then someone just calls out in the background, going, I need cricoid there pressure to tube him now. Mm-hmm. Can you guess what's wrong with that phrase? I know you're not a doctor, but uh, cricoid. No, I I can't uh, I I can't deduce what cricoid is. So cricoid is a uh, cartilage in your neck. Okay, so you you would need that if he was going to be into wait intubated. So the they were yelling out call. For, Give me cricocratia pressure. I'm going to tube him now while putting in the chest tube. Right. And since, so that's what you, you would, would you actually need if, if they were actually doing like a breathing tube? Yeah. Okay. Potentially. If you can't, if you look in and you can't see what's going on, then you would ask for cricoid pressure because what they do is they push on the neck slightly um, so that you can see the vocal cords and you can pass the tube straight through it. Okay. So that's the reason why you call for cricoid pressure. Um, just so that you can visualize the vocal cords so you can put the tubes the so tube the, through. It was the right language, except for the fact that it was the wrong intubation process. Correct. Right terms, wrong tube. Huh. Wrong so when way. I heard it, I'm like, I actually, <laughs> I actually had to rewind. I'm like, did they call for cricoid pressure on a chest tube? That doesn't sound right. So I, that part caught me off guard real, real quick. Um, and then you find out he got shot and it hurt his pulmonary artery. That's pretty hard to hurt. Because um, so, only be, it's like near your heart. Uh-huh. I mean, again, he got shot on the left side, so potentially it could happen. And then so I think Bartlett was going, oh, are you going to use a Gore-Tex mesh and blah, blah, blah to close it up? Yeah, okay. that, that, that was my I, I, uh, Gore-Tex graft. Yes. So you do use Gore-Tex for patching up stuff, um, mainly in heart surgeries and whatnot. So I guess potentially you can do that. But in this situation, the trauma surgeon would not be fixing the pulmonary artery. Uh, a vascular surgeon would, not the trauma surgeon. Mm-hmm. So kind of grilling the surgeon about everything is a little much. What kind of doctor is Bartlett? There? I, I, I think she's, I, I don't know that it's, specified. So you have to take a break to find out what kind of doctor Abby Bartlett was. And she is uh, an MD with a specialty in internal medicine and thoracic surgery. How? Why? What? So why is that an (laughs) issue? Unless she did two residencies 
Oh, sorry. Unless she did two residencies and a fellowship. That's, that's a lot. Okay. She uh, probably would have just been a first year doctor at this point. Because, <laughs> okay, internal medicine, that's three years. Right. Third internal medicine is, is generally your, your general physician like that you go to is either going to be a family doctor or an internal medicine specialist, right? As an adult. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then general surgery is five years. And then I believe thoracic surgery is like another one to two years. So that's a lot. So she, like she would have had 10 years of medical school um, and then established herself as a career and eventually becoming uh, adjunct professor of thoracic surgery at Harvard. I mean, what kind of professor are we talking about here? Is she an assistant professor, associate professor? No, well, she's adjunct, so she's she's just kind of there. That, that, what that, does that mean, mean though? That part-time. That, still, you can't be an adjunct professor at Harvard. You yeah, need you to, like You need to actually have a professorship before that, though. Uh, true, true. Right? You can't just be a part-time professor if you're not a professor first. Well, she's a doctor either way. Yeah, but I'm a doctor and I'm not under a professor name at, okay. at places. Well, aren't you, wouldn't you be under a professor, professor name as soon as you started teaching there? Because I mean, you are no. with an MFA. Incorrect. You can, there's different medical tracks at universities too. You can be an associate physician. Mm -hmm. You can be like an assistant professor. You can be an associate professor. There's many pathways, but earning so, full so you can be you can be teaching at te teaching at a medical school and but be teaching as a physician and not as as a professor. Correct. You That's be a really interesting. Instructor. Yeah, you're a clinical oh, instructor. Oh, okay, okay, that makes so sense. So those are very different things. So you're telling me Abby Bartlett did all this training and now is a world renowned physician in her very short career. Yeah, because she's probably. 50s in that's really tough unless yeah. you like had some groundbreaking research or whatnot it's very hard to be considered world-renowned i think the only reason why she's world-renowned is because she's married to the president and before that was married to the governor of new hampshire god i'm yeah i can't i can't <laughs> that, that also means and also at some point in time she stopped being any of that so that she could focus on being first lady because that becomes an issue at some point in time. Of, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, specifically, <laughs> when did I stop being Dr. Bartlett and start being Mrs. Bartlett? When did, when did, when did this become the... The defining I, thing of myself. The defining thing about me is, is the fact that I'm married to someone instead of I'm these 11 things. So yeah. she's, she's super-powered as far as credentials, is what you're saying. Yes, very, very much so. She used a cheat code. <laughs> to get that high but yes um i forget exactly why we why we got on the what what is she tangent because she was grilling that sur oh, that yeah. poor surgeon about everything i just assumed until they they name dropped him as the surgeon that i assumed that he was the chief of medicine that was there hand holding and being the liaison but no he was actively the guy in the room yeah i mean i I'm thinking in my situations where I've been like the, the, the doctor expert in my family, mm -hmm. I don't grill doctors until they kind of give me that attitude first. Uh -huh. You know, like, I think the only situation where I did that was when my grandmother, who was sick, was in the ICU and I was looking at her medications that were hanging from her IV pump. 
And the doctor just comes in and goes, don't touch that, don't look at it. And I said, why? I'm trying to figure out what medications my grandmother is on. And the first thing he goes is, are you some kind of medical student? And I look at him. I was once. I said, said, I'm an emergency medicine attending and I want to know why you're using these certain medications. And then he kind of was a little quiet for a while and didn't, oh, he's like, oh, so you're like an intern. I'm like, I'm an attending. Totally different thing. Yeah. So he got super mad about it too. Also, I learned that they kind of fucked up my grandmother's care. I don't care if I just swore. It was, <laughs> it was worth it. Um, Cause like they rolled her and they broke her arm and all this stuff. And they rolled her. So I was super mad about that. Yeah. Too. So all that together, you know, I had valid reasons why I could be upset at this attending mm-hmm. got mad at me for no good reason but that's the only time i've ever played the doctor card right away like i wouldn't walk in and tell a doctor how to do their job right that's not an appropriate thing unless i, I really feel like they did something wrong like right. stopping antibiotics when someone's on hospice that's not what hospice is i know greg will agree with me on this hospice is to make sure you're comfortable not that i gave up and yeah. that was the one thing i had to keep emphasizing to this icu doctor is that I know she's DNR, I know she's hospice, but you should still treat her as if she's a patient. Yeah. And that was one of the three, two or three times I thought she was going to pass away and didn't (laughs) because they treated her and she bounced back. I mean, ultimately she did pass away eventually, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, come on, do your thing. Don't be there. But Moving um, on to other yeah, medical things. Go, going back, well, actually, let's, let's stick with the one. The one we were talking about was the, we found Lyman. out that uh, Lyman has uh, the lacerated pulmonary artery, so they're giving him a Gore-Tex graft. That basically means that they're wrapping. It up. They're, they're using Flex Seal and yeah. slapping it on. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's got vapor lock. Um, oh, and It's okay, honey. It's just vapor lock. Um, and it, so that's a 12 to 14 hour surgery. And I know that that right. is like, it, it is reasonable that those sorts of surgeries happen. Sure. In, in that situation though, it'd be something where what the trauma surgeon would, would get him to, you're not going to die during the surgery status. And then the vascular surgeon would come in and do the, uh, yeah. the, the permanent work. Yeah. So like you got to patch, you got to fix the lung, mm-hmm. right? got to fix the pleura, which is your lung is surrounded by kind of like a thick tissue, very thick, that helps generate the negative pressure to expand your lungs. It's your lung bag. Kind of your lung bag. Like, did you ever do the experiment where you took like a two liter bottle, you cut it in half, you put a, a balloon inside of it, and then you put like a balloon underneath it, and then when you pull down on the balloon, mm-hmm. it like causes it to expand? Yeah. Think of that sack as the two liter bottle. You got to fix that so you can properly enclose the lungs into a, an, an environment again. So you gotta fix that. You gotta see where the lung is damaged and try to fix that somewhat. So you need a cardiothoracic surgeon for this part, no matter what. Then you gotta find the artery to fix that as well while you're maintaining perfusion to all the other organs and whatnot going on as well. So it's a very difficult long surgery. Would it be 12 to 14 hours? Sure. Um, could it be shorter or longer? Probably. Uh, do I know for sure? Nope. <laughs> Cause I'm not a surgeon. Right. <laughs> I'm just a simple ER doctor who goes, Ooh, your lung is collapsed. You need to go to the OR. Goodbye. <laughs> I fix, I, I, let me make sure you don't die here first so that you can make it up to the OR 
So that could be someone else's problem. You're, you're the door also, man that sends them to surgery? Yeah. Someone was calling for like serial crits too, because that sounds really cool. Um, you can't really do serial crits in the emergency department. And I know you're, you're asking. crits because I'm thinking Dungeons and Dragons here, and that just means you roll a bunch of 20s in a row. 20s in a row. Um, serial. So the crit stands for hematic crit. Okay. So it's checking your red blood cell load. And a serial crit means you're checking their hemoglobin and hematocrit more frequently than you would be on a normal patient. So maybe every hour or whatnot to every two hours to make sure they're not continually losing blood. To order serial crits in the ER is pretty silly because you're saying, hey, order this test that repeats itself over the next day or two. Because you're, you're because not going to be- No one's going to be in the ER for more than X number of hours. They're going to move to- in a good ER or right. in a not overloaded ER, I should say. Great ERs are overloaded all the time. Case in point, my fellowship, we would house adults in the emergency department during winter for 48 to 72 hours. Okay. Because, because of the fact they couldn't, and they couldn't leave. The hospital, but we can't yeah. move them upstairs because there's no beds upstairs. Um, in this sort of situation mm-hmm. where it's high security, would, mm-hmm. uh, would they... I guess in that in that situation where it was high security, they, the ER wouldn't be what they would convert to be a ICU. They'd get them directly into somewhere that they could secure. Yeah, you still want them in a bed that's a little more monitored, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, granted, you can keep a patient in the ER because it's technically a critical unit, right? It's yeah. a critical care unit. But you want them in an area where if they decompensate or whatnot, you have other staff there readily available. Well, you not just also, but you also don't want to shut down the emergency department exactly just for one patient, you know, right? Like, Even if it always, is the president, correct. We always joke around the emergency department is like is the gateway to the hospital, at times. Yeah. like to get admitted. A majority of patients get admitted to the hospital through the emergency department. Very mm-hmm. these days, it's a lot less likely for patients to get directly admitted to the to the hospital. Right, you have to stop in the ER, and the ER goes, "Oh yeah, you need a bed. Let me arrange for that." And and not just that, but uh, if you're if you have the president there and you want him in a secure location, the ER is literally how someone walks in. It is designed to be accessible immediately from the street. Yes, and luckily for him, though, because he's the president, he has guards at yeah. every single opening. But it would be a lot easier to also have him be in a room with a door that closes. Yes, unless he was in like oh. Trauma bays usually have a door that closes um, mm-hmm. because you don't want looky-loos. Yeah. Looky-loos are, I would say, one of the toughest things of working in the emergency department because everybody wants to look. Because when you hear the ambulance sirens and then you see people pushing a patient in on a gurney and sometimes if there's compressions going on, people leave their rooms and try to look and mm-hmm. peek in. And you're, that's another reason why I start kicking people out of the room. Right. Like, I don't care if you want to see this. I don't care if you haven't seen this before. If you were the sick patient, you wouldn't want to be the freak show being serious. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got one more specific question about, okay. about Josh, um, if you don't have more, more to say about it. Um, uh, the only other thing about Josh is just his recovery. That's, that's exactly what my specific question is, was yeah. uh, it, as he's de-intubated and woken up, um, I mean, extubated. That's that is a much more medical term than what I used. <laughs> um, 
generally because my only real experience with it in, in family members is during mm -hmm. COVID. So yeah, obviously, sure. uh, some some restrictions apply. Mm -hmm. um, would he be able to have guests in the room during that procedure while he was during, extub during extubation? Was that his extubation moment or was that after they woke? Because generally you're semi-conscious during an extubation, right? So you need to be able to prove that you can breathe on your own mm -hmm. um, before you can be extubated. So if you're, we call it riding the vent. Mm -hmm. um, if you're riding the vent, that means you're letting the ventilator do all your work. So that right. means you're not ready, right? But if you're breathing over the vent, that means your respiratory rate or um, your effort is above what the vent is providing. Mm -hmm. You have to prove that you are breathing over the vent for long enough and not needing the pressure support with desaturations of your oxygen to va uh, validate getting your tube removed. So sometimes, especially after a serious surgery like this, that's been going on for 12 to 14 hours, quoting the show, you're going to probably be intubated for a little while in the ICU. And then when you finally kind of wake up, realize that you don't need as many opiates to control your pain, um, which opiates will decrease your ventilatory, ventilatory status. Once you can prove all of that and you're getting up, then they pull the tube out of your mouth. So it takes a while, basically, is my mm -hmm. whole thing. Um, and it was kind of interesting how they woke him up, because it kind of woke him up as if he was waking up from a nap. Yeah. You know? Like, hey, wake up. You okay? You okay there, buddy? Gotta, gotta wake up. Usually once you pull the tube out, you're awake relatively soon they might give you something to help you relax because you basically just got pull started you got what pull started like a lawnmower kind of except <laughs> that's not how i pull the tube out i pull it out <laughs> much more Ugh. the last i will say this though i do not do extubations in the emergency department the reason why is if i pull out the tube and something goes wrong it becomes this whole new mess mm -hmm. i will let the icu do it where it's much more calm and not chaotic or crazy like my department is. Um, there's something called terminal extubations where you pull the tube and they die. Mm -hmm. Try not to do those in the ER as well. Um, you try not to do terminal processes. Let correct. me take that note here. Try not to kill patients in the ER. Check. Um, the other thing that I noticed on there was usually after a collapsed lung, the chest tube's in there for a little while. Okay. Um, I'm surprised they didn't show any canisters. I'm surprised they didn't have any monitors in there, yeah. especially for someone who just came out of an operating, uh, operating room. How but long that, after the operation do you think that was? I don't know. I would, I, they put the time up, didn't they? And I didn't pay attention. Oh, they might have. You're right. Yeah. And I would probably say it's the same day because this is TV. Okay. Um, but he would still have the chest tube and canister attached to him. That thing is not a comfortable thing. The tube itself, um, for reference, look at your thickest extension cord. It's okay. thicker than that. Okay. It's thicker than that inside of your chest. So every breath you take, that tube is rubbing against your pleura and your lungs. So it causes a lot of pain. So the fact that he wasn't waking up taking very shallow breaths and whatnot, not, not fully right. Hmm. So yeah, and that canister, he's going to be attached to that for a while. I don't know how long it was until he went back to normal, but it takes a while. Yeah, well, there's, so there's there's an ongoing, like, two or three seasons. No, I guess it's 
it's either the next season or the one after. So one or two seasons later, um, they deal with his PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, like he, he's. Oh, I'm not even talking about the PTSD. I'm just oh, talking, talking about physic- physical. Okay. Physical wise, he's going to have, I don't know, like at least a week or two of difficulty getting back to normal. Mm-hmm. At least. So I don't know how soon it was he goes back to the White House, which I think he's sounds back like a very. Episode. Which sounds like, a, you know, a not stressful, comforting environment yeah. to work in after you got shot. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, not, not, not down with that. <laughs> um, that so you, you brought up the ICU versus mm-hmm. the ER and the, the ICU is a calmer place. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I had a question about was specifically the tone of the uh doctors and staff uh mm-hmm. as josh was brought in because okay. they sounded very high stress um it's and- a high stress situation okay. don't get me wrong like you have someone to get shot you're trying to control your adrenaline mm-hmm. while trying to portray a very calm demeanor okay so that, that, that was kind of my question was did they sound overly panicked to or overly frantic so I've been- to you I've been in good and bad codes. Mm-hmm. Usually during my codes, um, I talk a lot. Like I'm always constantly chattering. Um, like I want this, I want this. You got it. Okay, good. Let's make sure we have this going on. Tell me what's wrong. Give me vitals. Just yell them out at me. I need to know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And it, I talk a lot. And that's my way of coping with the stress that's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy for me to be very anxious, but everyone else feeds into your energy as well Mm -hmm. parents will feed into your energy if they're in the room for some reason nurses rts all of them will mimic what rts respiratory therapists yes the unsung heroes of covid if no one knows what they do look it up they're very very important um but i always try to stay as calm as possible and i think for them it sounded frantic but it sounded controlled okay to me, anyways, yeah, I, it, and I and I think about my my situations where I've been in codes where the doctor is literally yelling over everyone else, going, "What mm-hmm. are you doing?" Blah blah blah. I need this. Blah. Those codes always end up horribly. And as someone who's done a lot of critical resuscitations, I've learned you you take a breath, you stop. Like once you kind of feel that overwhelming anxiety and panic kind of overwhelming you kind of just stop for a second, take a deep breath and just restart and go, is there something I'm missing? You do and the Jack Shepard from Lost and kinda, not, not necessarily count to 10, but... No, I don't have time to count to 10. Count to two. <laughs> uh, but I'll take like a huge, like a deep breath and go, okay. And I'll even ask the, the, the whole crew out in, in that work that's working with me going, what am I missing? What are we missing? And usually asking for help like that kind of resets your brain so that you can approach it in a different path and make sure you can save this patient. Because really, mm-hmm. this is not an ego situation, you know? And I've worked with doctors that make this all about them. Like, I'm the one who can save their life, no one else. Whereas you work with some of these nurses that have been doing this for a lot longer than you've been a doctor, and they know what's going on. You ask them for help because they sometimes know the answer and know what to do better than what you do. Mm-hmm. Don't just take your ego out of the way. And I, I, I feel... I feel you on this case because it does sound like the doctors are really anxious and whatnot. And this is a this is dram- dramatized, right? Yeah, seriously dramatized. 
it kind of sounds it's, like it, 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 it still felt accurate in that in, in yeah. that it didn't seem out of place to you. It's a forceful, fast talking. Okay, cool. That's what it sounds like to me because that's kind of how I talk at times too. And like, I'll, we'll have debriefs after cases. Like, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? Is there anything any of us could have done better? And that's mm -hmm. an important thing to do. Otherwise, bad habits continue. Yeah. If you don't talk and figure out what happened that worked and what didn't work, you're never going to know what's wrong. Right. So yeah, um, but this patient was super sick. Like Bradley Whitford, who forever in my mind will be the enemy in Billy Madison. <laughs> um, Eric. God, he looks like such a dick. He, he, the only time I've ever felt sympathy for him was like the last season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. The most recent season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine was the only yeah. time I felt sympathy for him. Other than that. Are you caught up on Handmaid's Tale? No. Okay. Is he's, he in it? He's in uh, the most recent season of Handmaid's Tale as well. Is he a dick? Um, yes, and he, uh, I'm, I, I don't want to spoil. Um, so but he is a dick. commander. So that, that, that so tells you dick. something. Yep, he's um, a dick. Yeah, um, and of course, Zoe, the president's daughter, is off red. Is, yes, which uh, I know. It's just interesting seeing Elizabeth Moss there. Yeah, and 15 years younger. Oh, 20 yeah. years younger now. Confusing. Um, yeah, so I, I, I guess that, that was my big big question on this one was, is that, uh, um, was it, that, that, so that didn't seem out of place to you. And it, it was one of those where, I felt like it might have been overdramatized. Um, so this is the, I know you're not a West Wing wa uh, watcher, so I'm gonna nope. evangelize for a moment and say that this is much more heightened than a lot of the episodes early on. Uh, mm. uh, Aaron Sorkin writes and produces the first three seasons, and then it's taken mm. over by John Wells from ER. And that's when it, uh, most of the episodes get more towards this tone. This chaotic, uh, the very dramatic. Doesn't Aaron? What else did Aaron Sorkin? He did the newsroom. And he did newsroom. Uh, he did Sports Night. He did Studio Never Sixty. Uh, it's funny. It's good. Um, no, uh, people he, always tell me how great it is, and I still yeah. haven't watched it yet. Uh, Social Network. Oh yeah. Um, uh, da, da, da. But his first big one was uh, A Few Good Men. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, and uh, the American President, the romance movie with. Bill um, not Bill Paxton. It was Bill yeah, Pullman. Yeah, Bill Pullman. Don't get. It's always easy to confuse those two. Pullman or Paxton? Yeah. Which one was the president at this point in time? Oh God, I forgot they both were presidents. Paxton was president in Independence. No, he was. No, he was Independence Day four too. Pullman was. Okay. Um, I don't remember what movie Paxton was the president in. Oh, that's going to be a trivia question tonight. <laughs> I guarantee it too. Okay. All right. Um, speaking of questions, God that was a great segue, wasn't it? I liked it. So good. Uh, the human centipede bills itself is 100% medically accurate. Okay. If that's the case, how medically accurate is season two, episodes one and two of The West Wing, In the Shadow of Two Gunmen by Aaron Sorkin? Okay, I will tell you this right now. It is more accurate than The Human Centipede. The question is how much more, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I was gonna. I'm, I initially wrote down one ten, but I think it's probably like one thirty, only because I'll give it extra points on you know the whole activation of trauma, the discussion of his lung being collapsed and how he was decompensating pretty bad. The other thing I wrote down: very good transfer from gurney to bed, 
which is actually how you're supposed to transfer a trauma victim. Hmm. That one person will hold the head and the person who holds the head is the one who counts on when everyone else moves the rest of the body over. Do you understand why they yeah, do that though? Because the, the, the reason for that being that the person who holds the head is the one who needs to ensure stability of that specific the spinal cord an inch yeah so it's really the spinal cord more than anything yeah. right so and usually the respiratory therapist at least at my hospital that's what they do so they hold the head and they move everything over so watching them transfer the patient over I'm like good job the rest the rest of it you know they discuss the medicine pretty well um i i hate the blood in the mouth trope i really do it's so stupid um the worst medicine comes from dr bartlett <laughs> <laughs> to be honest so thank god she gets um doesn't she lose her medical license yeah she gets disbarred for uh for uh treating him in states that she does not have a license oh man getting disbarred in medicine that's that's rough man because we don't have a state bar <laughs> <laughs> um man she got she lost her lawyer license for being a doctor Oof, yeah that, that's rough um not a law podcast i, I have someone else who can discuss the law but not this guy um, it so might yeah, not one... be that she's dis disbarred. I don't know if that's the term they use. I assume that Aaron Sorkin does better research than I do. Uh, losing your medical license is pretty much it. Yeah, but that but wouldn't be... That the problem is, did she lose her medical license in her state of practice, or did she lose her medical license in all the states of practice? Yeah. That's key, because I'm technically only licensed to be a doctor in California. Mm-hmm. However, when I lived in New Mexico, I held two medical state licenses, one in New Mexico and one in California. So I don't know how she lost her medical license precisely, but you know that better than I do. So yeah, I still stand by my number, 130. Okay. Um, she voluntarily surrendered it. How, what? Basically, in order to, as part of the, let's keep this from going even further, Mm -hmm. um, she voluntarily said, okay, in order to keep there from being even more furor, mm -hmm. um, she's going to voluntarily, voluntarily surrender it as part of the, the whole plea bargain. Yeah. I, I, I don't really understand. a plea bargain because, um, basically to be, because he was being censured, he was being censured by Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was part of the, okay, these are, uh, uh, these are the things that we will go through to to say uh, as our as our punishment. This is dumb. Okay. <laughs> From a medical, but again, politics itself is dumb. Uh, that's my political rant. A lot of politicians are making a lot of medical decisions and medical statements that are very stupid and. To make decisions like that is dumb, and I hate politics right now. I can't even watch TV. Thank God for stupid YouTube videos and Animal Crossing. That is what's <laughs> that is what's keeping me afloat right now. To be honest, the rest I of just, it is. Uh, so, uh, for those who are are listening, I just picked up Outer Worlds, and it's great, and I'm finally able to play it because I upgraded my computer. Because hopefully, we will be doing some streaming stuff soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Please, fateful findings. Yeah, Fateful Findings will be one of them. No, uh, I feel like Fateful Findings needs to be one when quarantine is lifted and we can all sit in the same room and stream it and watch it and make fun of it. Yeah. I, and I, we're going to be way too podcast-juiced. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, with that, folks, um, anything else we want to say about what's going on or? This, this whole episode could be made more medically accurate. If okay. Not. That's a question. If I didn't Bartlett ask. doesn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's a big part of it. And then just, you know, I get the terminology they're tossing around, but it's not the accurate terminology. I feel like it's so. closer than we generally see. You know what? Closer than Chicago Med. Yeah. Because Jesus Christ, yeah, Chicago Med. Oof. That was the last episode that was released, I'm assuming, right? That was yes. the, uh, the most recent one, yeah. Oof. God, that was, that was, a, that was a toughie. Yeah, Real that, toughie. that was a fun one. Oof. But yeah. All right. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, I, I, I didn't ask that question, but other than, other than, uh, than Abby Bartlett not being, uh, in, in, being in, in, Oh, and the, rec- the recovery scene. I mean, that, that could be easily fixed by saying five weeks later or like five days later or something mm-hmm. like that easily, you know, like those, that stuff is all timing issues and I get time compression in TV shows and building suspense and whatnot. Um, Alice and Janney's character needing staples. Again, that could be easily spun into a much more dramatic scene where mm-hmm. she starts forgetting more lines during press conferences and whatnot. That could be its own storyline in itself, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but that would be how I would have written it. But I'm not Aaron Sorkin. I didn't write A Few Good Men, so get out of my house. Yeah, I believe Aaron Sorkin has... Uh, no, I guess he doesn't have an EGOT because I don't know that he has a, uh, a, no. tone, Does- uh, a Grammy. He has an Oscar, right? For he has the Oscars. Network? Yep, he has multiple Emmys. Uh, he has a Tony for A Few Good Men. Wait, A Few, a few Good, good Men was a musical? Stage play. Oh, Jesus. I was thinking musical. No, it wasn't a musical. No, it, it, he actually started... handle the truth, huh? Yeah, you want the truth? You want the truth? Nope, pass. <laughs> nope, that's not going to work. I didn't know it was a stage play. Yeah. Not at all. Not cultured. Come on. Um, that's uh, uh, Josh Molina, um, who you would know if you saw more Aaron Sorkin things, uh, did the stage play. Um, uh, he's, nope. he's the guy who looks uh, just like uh, what's his face from the league, uh, smarmy guy with glasses. Uh, Nick Kroll? He yeah, looks like Kid looks- from Kid and Play. <laughs> Josh Molina? Yes. Okay. He looks like. He looks like Kid from Kid and Play and Stephen Colbert had a baby. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> That's who he looked like. Oh, it's terrible. Okay, close it. <laughs> All right, so with that, folks, uh, yeah, we'll be back with you uh, soon with more Hi Everybody Bad Medicine podcasts, including possibly on more media very soon. All right, bye, Thanks folks. Thanks for listening. I'm not joking. <laughs>